0: We are continuing to rejoice as we go through Nehemiah. So if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 7 through 18. As we saw last week, the people delighted in hearing the word of God. They went to Ezra and they said, we want to hear your word proclaimed. And they stood. And so here we are to revere God's holy word. Beginning in verse 7. This is the inerrant word of God. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodijah, Measaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy, the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them. And made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you as your people, and this is your word, and we long to hear it, and we pray for attentive ears this morning, that we would understand what your word says, that we would apply it, that we would obey it. That we be doers of your word because we love you and we love your word. And so, Father, we ask for the leading of your Holy Spirit that we might rejoice in your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last week there are three points. The first three points on your outline, it starts on point four. But we saw in those first three points that the people had a mind to hear the word of God, they were zealous. They assembled, all of them, in that open square, that big open square. They had a hunger for the Word of God. They had ears to hear the Word of God. And so they were attentive. They were listening in order to understand what was read and expounded. And they had a high view of the Word of God. And God, brothers and sisters, has lovingly given us His revelation, a revelation of Himself. And He's made it very clear in His Word that He wants us to know His Word which is also called his law, in order to know him, in order to obey him. He's given us his law to understand. Now the remnant of the people who came back here from Babylon, they gathered in that open square like we saw last week to hear the word of God and they were attentive because they knew this is the living word of God. And they revered it. And they wanted to know its truth. They were expectant, that an expectant attitude to hear the word of God and to understand it and to know it and to know the God of truth that it reveals. Now, there are many people back then, maybe, and today, who say, you know, the Bible is just way too hard to understand. It's too hard to understand, so they really don't look into it. It's too hard to understand, they say, for a number of reasons. But I have found that many of those who say so use that actually as a smokescreen for either their unbelief, they don't believe that this is the Word of God, Uh, Or they're just unwilling to really dig into it, to study it. And it is, there are some things granted that take effort to understand. Take, actually, the Holy Spirit to understand. But the Apostle Peter said uh, of Paul, he said, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. So there are people who twist the scriptures because they don't really know what it means. They don't really want to try to find out what it means. But they will twist it, and they're unstable. As I just said, and I also said last week, which I believe, for us, for you, this is probably keen insight into the obvious. But the word of God was given to be understood, the main point of this sermon. The word of God was given to be understood because he's a gracious God and loving, and he's given us his word, that we might understand it and know him and obey it. And since it was given by the sovereign Lord, it is also meant to be obeyed. It's to be understood, and it's to be obeyed. And I'd like to stop here just to highlight a doctrine. This is called the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. Perspicuity, it means clarity, that big word. I don't know who first decided that we should have that word to define this doctrine, but it's the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Try saying saying that five times quickly. It's hard. But the perspicuity of Scripture is something we must understand. And I think one of the best definitions of this doctrine is from the Westminster uh, Confession. In fact, as a statement of what we believe, the confession is as clear and as brief uh, of an uninspired overview of the Word of God that can be found, I believe. And it says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Martin Luther put it this way on this same doctrine. He said, but if many things still remain abstruse to many, this does not arise from obscurity in the scriptures, but from our own blindness or want or lack of understanding who do not go the way to see all the all-perfect clearness of truth. Now, by go all the way, he meant we don't really dig in. We don't really study it. And he said, let therefore wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to the all clear scriptures of God. So it takes some time. We've, all, we've acknowledged that many times. It takes time, it takes effort to dig into the word of God, to be men and women of the word. In Joshua 1, eight, it says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Amazing promise. We are to observe to do according to all that is written in it, because we've meditated on it day and night. We should be eager, brothers and sisters, to come to the Word of God, like the people here did. And we should come as those wanting to be doers of the Word of God, and not just hearers, and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us by all the means that he's given us to understand his word. And one of those ordinary means that he mentioned, that phrase, ordinary means, there are a number of ways that God has blessed us so that we can understand his precious word. One of those ordinary means is the hearing of the word of God and its explanation by men whom God has called, who have a high view of the word of God, who never, who do not question its authority, they do not question its sufficiency, who themselves have experience and maturity in using these ordinary means to understand the word of God better and then to teach it. And in verse seven, we read that the Lord gave these 13 men and the Levites, you remember uh, there was a platform built and uh, Ezra was up there and the 13 men were near him, seven on one side, six on the other, and uh, they were helping him uh, as to what was read And then as well, the 13 men we saw in verse four who who helped him read, but there were 13 men who were also walking around uh, helping them understand. So they worked hard to help the people to understand the word of God. In verse seven, it says, they helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So as these men were helping, the people continued to show their respect and their reverence for the word of God and they stood as it was being read. And then these men, uh, possibly simultaneously in some cases, or maybe in the pauses that were likely in that uh, large time frame, six or seven hours, or both, uh, they helped the people to understand the reading of the law. Many would not have understood, or even the language they didn't understand. So God gave these men to his people as a blessing. They interpreted its meaning, They explained some words and possibly they translated from Chaldee into Hebrew or reverse from Hebrew into Chaldee or Aramaic because some of them would uh, have struggled with the language at that point. But their goal and the need here was that the word be understood so that it could be applied and that the Lord would be glorified and that the Lord would be known. And there is a relationship here, I'd like to point out, between those who are hearing the word of God As they pray for them, uh, those who hear the Word of God and those who read and teach the Word of God. The leaders that God has given and that the people have chosen to listen to will impact their understanding of the Word of God. And the people of the church, the people who are listening, impact their leaders as they pray for them and tell them to bring the Word, like they told Ezra. And with that kind of attitude, with that kind of listeners, you will have, I believe, some pretty excited and blessed leaders as they proclaim the Word of God. So you all, speaking in the Southern dialect, you all have some impact on what we say and teach. don't know if you've thought of it that way. But as you pray for us, and as you come expectantly to understand the Word of God, and then you search the Scriptures diligently to see if what we are saying is in keeping with the whole counsel of God, you are having a very large impact on us, on the whole congregation. Now, Before the Lord wrote the law on uh, the Decalogue on the two tablets of stone, we are told in Exodus 24 that Moses took the book of the covenant or the scroll and that would have been the three chapters before uh, verse, uh, Exodus 24. The, probably most of the three chapters before that was called the book of the covenant. And he took that and it says, and read in the hearing of the people, And they said, this was their response, they heard the word of God, they verbally responded, all that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. Verbally, all the people said, we will do what you just said. Now they failed, and we'll see what response is needed at that point. But they said, we will do it. And so Moses, the leader in Exodus 24, and Ezra, the leader, and the other leaders that I mentioned, here in Nehemiah 8, they read the word, in obedience to their calling, and those who heard it responded. There was a response. They had a desire to obey the Word of God, and even a verbal and a corporate commitment to obey. There's a corporate commitment. And uh, I will speak for the other leaders of this congregation. Even though your leaders, and all leaders really, are weak, we are sinful men, we are frail often, this is one of the prime means to, that the Lord uses that the Lord has directed in his church to give an understanding of the word of God. Now, the men here with Ezra had accepted responsibility to help the people understand the word, and it tells us how they did that, in fact, beginning in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. They didn't just read it and say, "There there it is. They wanted them to understand it. So first of all, it says they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. Now, the word distinctly here means pretty much mainly to make it clear in in order to hear. You know, it's it's a hard situation they were in, but they were trying to make it as easy as possible for these thousands of people to hear the word of God, meaning that every word could be heard clearly and plainly. And in their case, they probably had to speak quite loudly, They probably had to project, kind of like Trevor does when we ask him to, uh, you know, get everybody's attention. You know, you can hear him booming from far away. And so their goal is to make the hearing of the Word of God, in the beginning anyway, to make it clear. So they built the platform, they did all those things. And then we see that it was read appropriately with correct pronunciation, I believe with correct enunciation, I believe, and intonation and accent and pauses and emphasis in the right place. All of those things help us to understand, help us to read, help us to make the word better understood. And really, it should be developed by all of us uh, because this is God's word. We should even read it. We should read it correctly. And when any of us read the word uh, in our mind or out loud in public, and when we teach, when any of us read the word, if we be, uh, be it elders or fathers or mothers uh, or those who pray in the back uh, or older children to their siblings, to read the context, to try to understand the basic context from which you are reading and seek to understand at least that basic meaning when you read it. So practice reading it, uh, preferably out loud first. And, and by the way, I have found great blessing in reading the Word. I usually do it when nobody can hear me, but I enjoy reading the Word out loud because it really helps me try, uh, stand back and understand this passage. You know, as if I'm reading it to somebody. It helps greatly. It really helps me a lot. I would encourage you in that. Well, secondly, after this had been read well, they expounded some of it to clarify its meaning, to give understanding. And as Bereans, you have some responsibility to find meaning yourself by asking your, others to help you, possibly, by using certain commentaries. Or uh, We almost have too many resources now uh, to, to use. And certainly by praying and asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me understand your precious word. Every time we come to the word, that should be the beginning of what we do. And I think with all the resources that are out there, I think it's helpful to know a handful anyway, of ones that you like to go to, uh, saints in the past, those who are online now, uh, men you can trust. And even then, to be ready always to measure what they say by the word of God, by all of the scriptures. And so our sermons and our communion meditations are meant to give the sense of a text, to give understanding, to help, for example, understand the culture of that time. And that's important, uh, one of the principles of hermeneutics. And uh, to use principles of hermeneutics or principles of understanding to uh, understand the meaning of the text as it was written at that time and what that means for us now, how it's relevant to us now, and sometimes to help with the meaning of words as they did. A good basic book on hermeneutics, if you've never read one, I would recommend is called Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul. Excellent, very readable. It's not four inches thick. It's a it's very good, helpful book for you and your family. So the word is meant to be understood, brothers and sisters, and we are all called to do all that we can to understand it. And having leaders that are called and prepared and who love the word of God is a big part of that. Now, I'd like to pause just for a minute and look at the person of Ezra, this man that the Lord used in this revival and Ezra was a very capable scribe and a priest. He was both. And they, are, they weren't always both. The scribe wasn't always a priest or a priest a scribe. But he was both, very gifted. And I think a brief look at who he is right now and at his character would be helpful. Uh, so if you would turn to Ezra chapter seven, Ezra chapter seven. Now it's obvious that Ezra had a large part in this revival. Ezra chapter seven, I'd like to read verses one through 11. Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariath, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. And he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, those are servants in the temple, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Long journey. According to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And then in verse 25, it says that the king, King Artaxerxes, In a letter to Ezra, verse 25 says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, this is the king noting the God-given wisdom given to Ezra, he asked him to do these jobs, these tasks, Set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. He's given a command by this Persian king to go and do that. Ezra was respected by him. Uh, to teach, and the king was aware of his God-given wisdom. Similar to Daniel. This man was a testimony in a pagan land of God, God's grace. And so Ezra was given authority by this man, this king, but ultimately his authority was from the king of kings. It says the good hand of his God was upon him, and his ministry was blessed. Matthew Henry, uh, on the person of Ezra in this, in this text, he said God gave him ability and authority and then the people gave him opportunity and invitation. So God gave him ability and authority, and then the people gave him opportunity and invitation. And that's how, basically, it still happens. God calls and gives ability and authority uh, to men, and then the people of God give them opportunity and an invitation to teach. Now, in a Presbyterian system of church government, members vote for those who have been observed to have the character that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Uh, men who have been nominated and chosen by that particular body. And then they are ordained by a body of uh, elders to be competent in knowledge and practice and experience maturity as men apt to teach and able to shepherd and serve as under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, men who are humble and realize that he purchased you with his blood. And yet we are called to be under-shepherds. So Ezra was called and qualified and given ability from the Lord. um, He was of the line. He was called as a priest. He was of the line of Aaron. And he was a skilled scribe, it says, in verse 5. And he loved the word of God. In verse 10, it says, this is more directly about his character. It says, for Ezra had prepared his heart. Some versions say set his heart. He had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his commandments and statutes in Israel. So the people gave him opportunity uh, to do such. They assembled together, and then, like we saw last week, they invited him, essentially, they told him, we're ready to hear the law of God. So pray for us. I would ask you to pray for your leaders. Pray for us, pray for each head of household in this congregation, really for all of us here, but specifically right now, I'm asking you to pray for your leaders, that we might have a heart like Ezra, and be men like this. We might have hearts who uh, and longing to study the word of God. We do study the word of God. We want to be even better at studying the word of God, the law of the Lord. Pray for us, too, that we would have hearts to do the word of God, to apply it. It's meant to be done. We want to be doers. We don't want to just gain knowledge. We don't want to just know about it. We want to do it. And pray that we would have hearts and a growing skill to teach it, to communicate, to help people understand the Word of God. And pray that the Lord would raise up men. Joel this morning prayed that among us, our young men, would rise up and be godly men who love the Word of God. The Word is their delight. And pray for elders like this in the CPC. Yesterday at our Uh, Fall Presbytery uh, that was mentioned. We uh, spent five hours on the phone together, 25 of us. Those are dear men. And I appreciate them every time I, I hear them speak. And I'm odd, I'm humbled that I could be with them, but most of that time, most of that five hours, more than half of that time, was when we were sharing from our hearts, we were sharing about what's going on in our lives and in the lives of the congregations. And we prayed for each other, rightly so. So please pray. I know they would ask me to say the same thing. Pray that there would be men like Ezra who set their heart on the law of the Lord, who do it, and then are able, more and more able to communicate and help others understand the word of God. Now this short series on Nehemiah, by the way, came about uh, because of the discussion with the young men and their fathers that we have. I don't know when we began that, maybe a year ago. And it's been a great blessing to talk with those young men and ask them questions. And the main reason we were studying Nehemiah was because we want to understand, we want to help each other understand what does it mean to be a leader in the church of the living God? What kind of character did Nehemiah have? What does a servant leader look like? That's what we want to know. We still want to know that. So pray for us that that study, and we'll start in chapter 10 uh, fairly soon, that we'd continue to grow in that area. Now, we're all responsible to grow in diligence and skill to understand and obey the Word of God. And we should all seek to enable our teachers, our elders, or fathers, or our mothers uh, to teach with joy to help us understand the Word by having a teachable heart, first of all, by having an attitude, a teachable attitude, a zealous heart for the Word. Really, because to do otherwise, for whatever reason, is unprofitable. It's not helpful. In the end, for you. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Let them do so, that is your leaders, let them do so, let them lead, let them teach with joy and not with grief or not with sorrow, for that would be unprofitable for you. Some versions say that would be a disadvantage for you. But the people here did understand the word that they heard and they were taught, and when the word is understood, in other words, when it is spiritually understood, when the Spirit has opened people's eyes to the true meaning of the Word of God, His people do what the Lord intends by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Basically, it's saying the Lord determines that rain comes down, snow comes down, and it accomplishes what the Lord intends. It's an example of that. The Lord accomplishes what he intends through his powerful word. And it goes on, verse 11 says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Praise God. So the word accomplished here, what the Lord intended by causing them to mourn for their disobedience you know, because they heard the word of God. And when the word is understood, it causes us to see, first of all, I believe, our need for the gospel. We need to be reminded always that we need to rejoice in the gospel. Our hope is in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are a disobedient people. And then by God's grace, we have sorrow for our sin. And then we can see again that we're reminded again that our only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings great joy. That process actually brings great joy. But first of all, let's look at the sorrow, verses 9 through 11. It says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy, it's set apart to the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. So here we see that when we come to the Word of God, often, maybe always, we are confronted in some way with our own sin, our own rebellion. or as the people here, uh, they were confronted with their own disobedience as the people of God. But at this point, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said to the people of God uh, who are assembled, that because this day is holy, it's set apart for worship and the hearing of the law, that they should cease, at least for now, mourning and weeping. So the people were moved. People were stricken, I believe. They were grieved by what they had heard from the law, because they knew very clearly then that they had rebelled. They and their people had rebelled, and they justly bore the consequences of their rebellion. That was their captivity. And the word or the law that they heard made that very clear. So they understood the law of God. And the proper response to the word is to mourn that we have disobeyed our Father in heaven. That we have grieved the Holy Spirit. And we have rebelled against our Father's loving kindness that he would even give us his law. We've rebelled. But at this time, the leaders, they said, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Levite spoke, and they said, this day is holy. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So you all know that Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And certainly we see the teaching going on here. They heard the Word of God. They were taught. They understood. And then there's reproof, and there's correction, again, by the Word of God, and training in righteousness. We are reproved as we come to the Word of God, and we must be. We are corrected by the word of God. And then as we receive that reproof, if we receive it, if we receive that correction from the Spirit through the word and we humble ourselves, then we, it says, are trained in righteousness, by, again, by the word of God. We are sanctified more and more by his forgiving grace. And that is why each Lord's Day, we hear the law as we come to confess publicly, corporately. As sinners, we need to be reminded often, I believe, to repent of our law-breaking, and then we can grow in rejoicing in his great grace to us. That is how we are trained in righteousness. We're in a training program, all of us. And this mourning for sin should also be taught, of course, and exemplified by the leaders that God has given. And when they have this attitude, this attitude of contrition and grief, for their own sins, then they will be able to lead and teach the word rightly. Prideful leaders, prideful parents, unwilling to humbly admit their own sins to those they are leading, will not be truly helping them to understand the word. In fact, except for the Lord Jesus, all servant leaders must be examples of those who mourn when they and the people of God they are leading break his law, break his covenant. David said, My eyes shed streams of water, or streams of tears. He wept profusely. My eyes shed streams of tears, because men do not keep your law. May we have that kind of heart. And we see in Ezra that he was that kind of leader. In Ezra chapter 10, it says, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. They wept with him. So Ezra was praying and mourning and weeping for the disobedience of his people and they were led to do the same. Certainly they were led by the word and the spirit, but the Lord also uses the example and the obedience and the heart of his leaders. So again, the second time, I would ask you to please pray for us that we might lead in this way as we pray for you to humble yourselves before the Lord and to be submissive to his word. We see this kind of humble example in another man, King Josiah. This is in 2 Chronicles 34. Verse 19 says, Thus it happened when the king heard the words. Remember, they had not been read for a long time. They found the law, they found the book, it was read to him, and it says, When the king heard the words of the law, that he tore his clothes, which meant he was It's a heartfelt action of of deep remorse and grief. It says, Then the king commanded, he had six men around him, and he commanded them, his servants, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the law of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. And a little later, it says that Huldah the prophetess who these men went to to uh, ask her to inquire uh, to, of the Lord for their king. She said uh, to those men, tell, tell your king, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, that was the word of the law, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. I ask you again, pray that your leaders be the elders or deacons or parents, that they would have tender hearts like Ezra and Josiah, who will humble themselves when they hear His word, and so may be examples and able teachers. So while the people here in Nehemiah 8 were grieved and they wept and were sorrowful uh, as they heard the word of God, and rightly so, because they and their fathers had not kept the law but had rebelled against it, the leaders told them that today is not a time of sorrow, though. There will be a time of of, uh, corporate repentance, which comes in chapter 9, where they all wept and they corporately repented and confessed. There is a time of sorrow. There is a time of corporate confession but praise God, righteous grief for sin and repentance results in the joy of the Lord, only by his grace, of course, for those who know his word, those who understand his grace. At this point in this week of worship, this is a whole week, Ezra said in verse 10, go your way, go home basically, eat the fat, drink the sweet, that, well, those were drinks that they didn't normally drink, but in the time of feasting they did, so go your way, eat the fat. Drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And because the leaders understood from the Lord that this was now to be a time of joy, they were able to help the people understand the meaning of the day, of this time, of this worship time. And so they all began to rejoice in the word. So this is a true revival service. There's repentance and weeping, sorrow for sin, and then great joy. the lord is forgiving in verse 11 it says so the levites quieted all the people saying be still for the day is holy the people were rightly grieved but they said do not be grieved and we'll see in a minute why the levites they were walking around they sought to quiet them calm them in their grief to help them worship at this point without mourning and to find that their strength and their hope and their joy must be in the lord And the result was, it says in verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. They came, they were hungry, they heard, they understood, and they obeyed. So rather than fast, which is often done in a time of mourning, they understood the sense given to the words that were read directly and distinctly to them and then spoken to them by their teachers, and then they rightly obeyed. They did as they had heard and understood by eating and drinking and uh, feasting, sending food to those who did not have much or, or didn't have anything prepared. In other words, they were joyful. This joy was spreading among the people. Here, here's some food. And they rejoiced greatly. So true repentance and righteous grief should, by the grace of God, result in the joy of the Lord being our strength. In fact, I believe a true understanding of our sin and the grief it causes, the destruction it causes to us and others around us, and then the repentance that the Lord enables us to have is how we truly understand what joy is. Otherwise, I don't believe we understand what is joy. And we don't understand what grace is, certainly. It increases, I believe. It strengthens our joy. So we shouldn't avoid this kind of sorrow, of course, when it's necessary, when... God calls us to that. There should be great joy in understanding the word of God. The Lord enables us to understand his inerrant and eternal and his powerful word by the gift of the spirit of truth. And then, often, by weak men, teachers who love the word of God, who are called, who still understand uh, that they uh, need the grace of God. And we first understand our disobedience to the Lord, In his law, this is kind of the process. We understand that we've disobeyed, we've broken his law, we are lawbreakers, and then by his spirit, we can rejoice that the penalty for our lawbreaking has been paid fully by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his sacrifice for us on the cross. And that is reason for great joy. That is eternal joy. In John chapter 14, the Lord said to his disciples, saying to us now, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will show myself to that kind of person who has my commandments, who wants to keep them, who loves me. What an amazing promise. Jesus says, I will love you. I manifest myself to you. I will show myself to you. May that be so in this congregation. The last part of this section of Nehemiah, in verse 13, it records that the people with such an attitude that we've described here, a desire for the word of God and a commitment to obey the word of God, when they heard about, uh, in this section, when they heard about the right way, actually, they, probably at that point, they were uh, reading Leviticus 23, or uh, possibly Deuteronomy, but uh, they had read that, they heard it, and they heard about the right way to observe this, uh, this festival of booths, from their leaders. They did it with all their heart. They had a mind that we saw together in chapter four. They had a mind to build so they built a wall. They had a mind to pray together and they poured out their hearts to the Lord together. They had a a heart to hear the word of God together which we see in this chapter. And then they humbled themselves, began to humble themselves together again. And now they understood that the Lord wanted them to rejoice and be glad together. And so they went about doing that right away as the Lord had clearly told his people many years before. says in verse 13, Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses, of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And so they found written in the law, probably from Leviticus 23, it says what the Lord had commanded, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during this time, during this feast. And said, go out, get all these kinds of branches, and it says at the end of verse thir- uh, 15, it says, as it is written. So these are people who said, okay, that's the way it's written. We're going to do it. And they did it exactly, probably in a way that hadn't been done since the time of, at least from the, uh, the time of uh, Joshua. And then it says the people went out. They brought them. They made booths on, on the roof of their house or in the courtyards or, you know, they, different places. They kind of spread out. They made these uh, booths. It says, so, so the whole assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths. They all did it together. They obeyed together. Since the days of Joshua hadn't been done. And there was very, it says in verse 17, there was very great gladness. Can you picture this? All the people said, we will do it, let's do it. Let's build these, uh, these things and, and rejoice and feast So first we see that the heads of the households and the priests and the Levites, they met for a time with Ezra to hear more of the law of God. They wanted even more. So teach us, we want to understand the word and then we'll help others to understand the word. And they found in the law this part about the Feast of Booths, which I need to enunciate clearly because if I say Feast of Booths, it doesn't really sound good, but Feast of Booths. So again, enunciation is important. But they did exactly what Uh, was commanded in Leviticus 23 in a complete way, as it is written, it says. And so they made these temporary booths to commemorate how the people of Israel had lived in temporary shelters when the Lord brought them out of Egypt. So it was only for a short time that they did this. And so along with uh, Passover and Pentecost, Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, it's also called the Feast of In Gathering. It's a, it's a fall festival. It's one of the three annual festivals. And, you know, a harvest festival is usually a joyous time. And it certainly was here. Why was their gladness so great, though? Just to conclude. Why, was, why were they so... It says in verse 17, there was very great gladness. There was very great rejoicing. They didn't just, okay, we've got to build a booth. And they, I, I believe they enjoyed this to the fullest. Well, they obeyed as one people. The whole assembly, it says, together, they obeyed the command to experience the joy of the Lord as their strength. And there is joy in obedience and great joy when we obey as an assembly, together, as God's people. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. They rejoiced. They had one mind to rejoice. We should have one mind to rejoice every Lord's Day. I believe we do. I I could hear it. I could see it today. Praise God. We have great reason for rejoicing. And we're growing, I believe, in how to do that here. May we continue to grow in that. May it be even more so that we, with one heart and one mind, rejoice in obedience to our King who loves us. And I read a number of Jewish commentaries. I always learn more about the feasts, Um, and I, I studied what they were like long ago, but then I... Uh, saw some things even modern day, and in fact, that picture in the in the notes there was one I found on a modern day practice of that. But some of them were quite creative, and and the kids got out and they built these things, and they decorated them, and they had all, a lot of a lot of fun. Um, it, it was uh, amazing. In fact, uh, the word "chag" for holiday. Uh, if if you heard somebody talking about a holiday uh, back in without specifying which one you're talking about, if it was, they were talking about, wow, that was great, that was joyful, then everybody understood it. it was this festival, the time of joy. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure, we don't have to keep these, by the way, anymore. Our Lord Jesus came. These were pointing us uh, to him. But, and, I, and I'm not sure how, what's, is there a modern equivalent for us? In, I will say yes in just a second, but you know, maybe, I, at first I thought, What would that look like in our congregation? I love you people. I'd love to go out and, I don't know about building booths, but, um, you know, going camping? I don't know. We go to a beautiful place. All of us, in the spring. No rain. (laughs) Because it's rained every time we've gone camping. But singing and rejoicing, possibly dancing. Rejoicing in the Lord. Although in this case, I think, Uh, In most cases now, I guess in my life, I'd rather be in a booth like the Tyler's fifth wheel or mortar home. (laughs) That's my kind of booth. But uh, what I'm saying is though to do something together. I enjoy being together with you. Volleyball, whatever it is, going to the Dykstras. But for us now, the Feast of Joy, the only one we're commanded to keep, is not once a year brothers and sisters, it is weekly, praise God, weekly Lord's Day, where we confess. We do do that. We hear also, after our confession, we hear of the Lord's mercy and his forgiveness. We sing for joy. We hear the word proclaimed. And then we feast together in the table of the Lord and in our fellowship meal, all because the Lord Jesus has come. And we have great reason for joy. And I'd like to conclude thinking of our Lord Jesus in the temple. They handed him a scroll, he had a scroll, and he opened it. And he opened it to Isaiah 61. And he said about himself, said this is fulfilled in today, fulfilled in him. And it said, He came to console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty. For Ashes ashes were used in, in deep mourning, times of mourning. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And then he said a little later, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Praise God, our Lord and our King wants us to have fullness of joy in Him. Sin and rebellion and disobedience does cause sorrow to ourselves and to others. But repentance, true repentance and obedience, because God in his mercy has enabled us to understand his precious word, brings joy. And that joy is from a growing communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. There is joy in the presence of the Lord. This is the joy that makes you strong, it says. This is the kind of joy that makes us strong as a body a joy that nothing can quench. No problem or fear or enemy can take this kind of joy away. Joy in the Lord gives us together very great gladness. May it be so in this congregation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are indeed and alone worthy of all praise. And we as your people bow in submission, to say that we desire to understand your word more and more, to obey you, and to know the joy of the Lord as our strength. And we praise you for giving us your word, to reveal your truth, to reveal yourself, and oh, that we would be diligent to hear and repent and obey, and together know very great gladness in you. And we pray that you would raise up other leaders from among us who will lead in humility, who will lead in the wisdom and joy and the strength of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, fill us with the spirit of joy that we might glorify your holy name. For we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.